Welcome to Radio Who, What, Why. I'm Jeff Shackman. Not since the apogee of the Cold War has Russia been so paramount in our national discourse. The Trump administration, the events in Helsinki, and the events of the past few days have only brought this into bold relief. But Churchill's riddle wrapped in a mystery inside an enigma is a very different Russia than the former Soviet Union. Although, as Churchill pointed out, Russian national interest still seems to be the key. Vladimir Putin, while rushing to the core, is somehow different from Khrushchev and Brezhnev and Gorbachev, or even the czars that came before. And our conflicts and tension with Russia today are also different. We always risk making the big mistake if we don't understand modern context, if we don't understand that this is not Cold War 2.0, but rather a global conflict whose antecedents may be the Cold War, but whose reality is sui generis to the world of the 21st century. Joining me to try and put all of this in context, particularly in light of recent events, is a man who truly understands Russia today. He is Michael McFall. He's a professor of political science and director and senior fellow at the Freeman Spogli Institute for International Studies at Stanford and a senior fellow at the Hoover Institution. He served for five years in the Obama administration, first as a White House special assistant to the president, as senior director of Russian and Eurasian affairs at the National Security Council, and as U.S. ambassador to Russia from 2012 to 2014. He is a longtime Russian scholar, the author of numerous books, and his latest is From Cold War to Hot Peace, an American ambassador in Putin's Russia. Michael McFall, thanks so much for joining us here on Radio Who, What, Why. Sure. Thanks for having me. As we look at Russia today, what's the biggest mistake we make in trying to view it through the lens of what we all experienced in the Cold War? That's a good question to start. I think the biggest mistake is to assume a monolithic regime and a, a uniform society that believes the same. Um, I think there's much more diversity within that society than most people uh, believe or read about. Um, there are people that support Putin with lots of passion, uh, but there are people that don't support Putin. Uh, there are business people that uh, uh, acquiesce to the rules of the Kremlin uh, but don't really uh, wish it were otherwise. Um, and then there's just pockets of, of different kinds of, of innovative people in the tech sector and business and society and, and the arts. It's not just everybody thinks the same and supports Putin. There is the sense, and, and you write about this in From Cold War to Hot Peace, that there really are many different Russias today, that there's a government, the oligarchs, the Russian people, as you say, the business interests, that it's really difficult to get a handle on or to try and look at it as some kind of monolithic Russian state as we were used to during the Cold War. Yeah, that's right. And probably during the Cold War, there was more diversity than we knew. It was just hard to, to study that regime and that society, right? But today, just as you would never say in casual conversations, uh, Americans believe X or America wants to do Y because Americans have lots of different views on things, right? Um, I, I don't think it's quite as extreme uh, in Russian society today, uh, but there is not one view about the future of Russia internally, and there's most certainly not one view about its foreign policy. Um, and even within the regime, even within the government that serves Putin, I found when I was ambassador, uh, lots of diversity and lots of people that didn't support his confrontational stance towards the West and the United States. 
How does the, the Russian government today, the Putin government, reflect this difference and reflect the different interests that are in Russia today? Well, the main thing that happens in that society, uh, both within the government and within the business community and, and kind of civil society more broadly, is to get ahead or to stay out of trouble, uh, you have to go along with Putin. So that doesn't mean you want to go along with Putin. That's the difference I want to make, that, that you, go, you, you go along, you support the policy because you want to keep your job or you don't want to go to jail or you want to keep your business. But it doesn't mean that you think it's the right strategy. Um, and in academia, uh, when we write about this in political science, we call these uh, hidden preferences that, that, that people express something formally, like to a pollster about what they think, because it's, it's, in their in, it's in their interest to do so. But if given the opportunity to express their true preferences, it might be something different. And, and you've got to remember, there's a lot of coercion in that system right now. There's a lot of uh, where you do things not because you want to, but because you don't want to get into trouble. Doesn't that create a society with an awful lot of fragility that really seems built on or propped up on economic success? And that if for any reason that economic success breaks down, that it's really easy to see it all crumbling? I think that's right. Um, and I think you even saw signs of that back in December 2011 and the spring of 2012 when uh, there was a falsified election in Russia, a parliamentary election. Uh, kind of normal standard <laughs> rates, by the way, for Russia, 5% or so. Uh, but that time, uh, because of smartphones and Twitter and Facebook, uh, it was captured, it was uh, documented, uh, spun around the Internet. And you went from 50 people protesting on day one to within weeks, hundreds of thousands of people protesting. And that really came out of the blue for Putin uh, uh, and his government. They, they thought that everybody was happy. But if you look at the opinion polls and to your point about economic performance, uh, Russia was not doing as well uh, in 2011 as they had been doing in the early years of Putin. As president, by the way, they did well in the early years because of oil and gas prices more than anything he did personally. But if it happens on your watch, you get credit for it. And as a result, people protested. And I think he then cracked down and he arrested people and uh, made it more difficult to organize protests. But that's an illustration of maybe things under the surface uh, are not as uh, supportive of him as they might appear. Um, the other factor we have to add to it, however, is one other one that gave him a bump in the, in the polls and support, which was his uh, intervention into Ukraine. So the annexation of Crimea and then the supporting of separatists in eastern Ukraine. Um, that event is portrayed as a war that Russia is waging on behalf of ethnic Russians inside Ukraine against us. Uh, I think a lot of Americans might be surprised to hear that, but if you look at the news, that's the way it was portrayed. Um, and in all countries, Russia is no exception. When you go to war, there is a rallying around the flag effect, um, but that's beginning to wear off. People are beginning to wonder, well, you know, okay, that was a long time ago. Uh, economic uh, performance is, is really sagging. Uh, some new numbers just came out 
yesterday from one of the major Western banks that analyzes it, and Russia is falling behind. And so I think over time that's going to create a problem for Putin. And how is this war different? How is the actions that Russia has taken in Crimea and the Ukraine then how's it different from the proxy wars that Russia engaged in, that the Soviets engaged in during the Cold War? Yeah, that's a good question. So on the one hand, they look somewhat alike in that, uh, you know, we're, we're doing battle, if you will, between the West and Russia in a third country. Uh, what's different here is uh, annexation. So, uh, you know, I use the phrase hot peace to, to, like you said in the beginning, that was a great introduction, by the way, to... To, to echo that there are some things that are similar to the Cold War, but to also suggest that things, some things are different. And here, there's one really big difference, and that uh, there was annexation of territory. Um, one of the achievements of the Cold War era, and the Helsinki Accords in particular in the 1970s, was that we thought we had gotten rid of annexation um, uh, in Europe. Right. That happened after World War Two. But then when we signed up to the uh, the Helsinki Accords in 1975, the idea was no more border changes. We're going to we're going to keep these borders as they are. Um, this is something new. Annexation is something we thought we had outlawed after World War Two. And, and now it's back. Very different from spheres of influence, which is the way we looked at it during the Cold War, I suppose. Yeah, well, there's an echo of it where, again, Putin is saying uh, what happened in Ukraine, just to be clear to your listeners, uh, there was uh, President Yanukovych was there who was very close to Putin. Um, he declined to sign uh, an association agreement with the European Union, and people went out to protest against him. Um, and that led to violence, and eventually it led to the fall of President Yanukovych's president. And he fled and he went to Russia. Uh, we in the West, you know, the United States, we were watching these events and trying to defuse them. I was still in the government at the time. Uh, but when Yanukovych fell, uh, Putin blamed us for that. He thought that that was us fomenting democratic regime change against one of his allies. And he did think of this as being in his sphere of influence because Ukraine is on the border with Russia, and this felt like we were encroaching on, on Russia. Now, I want to say, underscore, that is not uh, my view. That most certainly is not President Obama's view or other European leaders, but that's the way Putin perceived it. And that's why he struck back. That's why he went into Crimea to take that land there, and when it was easy to do, then he doubled down with his actions in eastern Ukraine. You know, we talk so much domestically about the impact of globalization here in the U.S., the impact of, of modern communicate 24-7 communications here. How have these things impacted Russia today? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, there are some things that are similar and some that are different. So on the similarity side, uh, you do have Russia entering into the world economy uh, over the last 20 years, um, uh, punctuated by joining the World Trade Organization uh, back in 2012. That was a, an accomplishment of, of U.S.-Russian cooperation, by the way. There was this period from 2009 to 2012 where we actually were doing a lot of business with the Kremlin. Uh, that ended when Putin came back. Um, but that has had the same pressures that you see around the world, including in our country, where 
Um, some of their manufacturing can't compete. Um, so you have a lot, you have a loss of industrial jobs. And, um, as a result, uh, under Putin, a push for protection for the, some of those jobs, particularly like in the manufacturing, um, uh, industries, the uh, car industry. Uh, and so that's, that's happening there. Uh, you also have immigration, uh, pressures, uh, largely from central Asia, where uh, lots of workers coming in of a different ethnicity, of a different religion, and that is fueling nationalistic tendencies uh, inside Russia, as you see in other countries in Europe. One of the other dangers that you talk about is really the danger of cyber warfare today. Talk a little about that, Mike. Yes. Yeah, I think uh, cyber is the great unknown to most people if you don't haven't seen it up close and personal. Uh, I remember my first briefing at the White House about cyber threats, and, and Russia uh, is the country that has more uh, uh, capability than any other country, although China's catching up. Um, and it, it kind of reminds me, in a strange way, of the history with nuclear weapons back in the 50s, where we acquired this new technology and this new capability uh, but we hadn't really figured out the policy and norms of how to regulate it. And so people back then talked about using nuclear weapons in war, which, of course, today would be crazy, right? Well, cyber has that same capability. Uh, and by the way, we have a lot of cyber capability, too, in the United States, where you can attack your adversary and do great damage to their economy, and not only uh, to their infrastructure and and you know, in the most dire scenarios where people uh, would be killed. Um, uh, and yet there's no norms, there's no treaties to guide what, uh, what you should be able to do with it. So that's on the kind of security front. And then there's the other front, which we, we experienced directly in 2016, the disinformation front, where um, because it's so easy to move information around today, um, and it's not regulated, right? There's no stopping of, of information from Russia at American borders, at least not yet. There, there is in China, by the way, but there isn't in the United States. Uh, that means that they can easily participate in American politics, and, and including presidential politics. And, um, you know, they can uh, lobby on behalf of one a candidate, as they did in 2016, and and when the, the Kremlin is tweeting hashtag crooked Hillary, uh, you know, that's pretty clear that they have a preference, right? And, um, and then it's going to get scarier. It's going to get a lot scarier because the technology is evolving in such a way that it's going to be difficult for, um, for us to determine what is real and what is fake. And I've seen, I've seen the future with some of our companies where I'm going to be giving a speech, uh, and it's going to look like me and sound like me, but, but some computer programmer is going to be providing the words. Um, and what do you, how do you deal with that, and how are we going to be able to t determine in the future what is real and what is fake? And the Russians have invested intensely in that kind of technology. And the overlay to this is a point that you repeatedly make, and from Cold War to Hot Peace, which is that Putin is no friend to the U.S. 
Yeah, he's not. Um, and, and I do try to write about in the book the evolution of his thinking, because I do think uh, there was an evolution. But today, uh, he thinks of himself as back into a ideological struggle with the West. He thinks of himself as a conservative, uh, orthodox thinker, uh, but the last uh, thinker in the world uh, who supports those values uh, battling against you know, the decadent liberal ideas in the West. Um, and, you know, he's invested a lot of money to propagate those ideas uh, with Russia Today and Sputnik and the, the bots and trolls that, that they hire. Uh, they give money to like-minded political organizations uh, around the, the world, especially in Europe. Uh, they support non-governmental organizations that embrace their ideology. And so... You know, he fundamentally wants to weaken the United States uh, and weaken our allies. That's that's his objective. Um, and it's a long-term fight that I think he'll be uh, waging for, for years to come. Like the Cold War, it doesn't mean that it's all confrontation. Um, and in certain areas, uh, I think he will be willing to cooperate with the United States and you know, on arms control, for instance, uh, just as we did during the Cold War, I think we we would be well served to, to return to uh, negotiating controls on nuclear weapons. Um, uh, the, the last treaty we did, I, I was part of the government that did it. It's called the New START Treaty. It was signed in 2010 and it expires in 2021. Uh, we need to replace that and, and we should engage with Putin on that particular issue but I think, generally speaking, we need to understand what his motives are and then develop a strategy to, to push back. Talk a little bit about the way in which Putin's ideology, very different than the struggle between communism and, and capitalism that shaped the Cold War, that the ideology you talk about with respect to Putin in some ways meshes with some of the internal political struggles in America today. Yeah, well, it, it, it overlaps, and they see ideological allies here, the, the kind of nationalist, conservative, and, and I use the word conservative advisedly because there are lots of conservatives that would, would disagree with um, some of the things that he says, but this more nativist, nationalist, um, ethnic, ethnically-based nationalism, uh, anti-globalism, anti-international institutions, um, that's, that's his set of ideas. And there are, uh, thinkers and, and political, uh, activists, um, in the alt-right movement in America that have, um, are, are really admire Putin and, and believe that these ideas is a shared ideological struggle that they have in the world. I call it the illiberal international. Um, and you've seen this for years, by the way. It's not just uh, in this recent election where, where people of that persuasion here are oftentimes quoting some of the, the big ideologues that are close to Putin's. And so that is happening. It's happening in, the, in Europe as well. But you see strands of it um, uh, in the United States. Guys like Steve Bannon, for instance, uh, uh, speaks um, admirably about this movement, and they see Putin as a, as a kindred spirit uh, in, in the way that they look at, at, at global issues uh, and, and the way they look at the way they define nationalism within the United States. 
Michael McFall. His book is From Cold War to Hot Peace, an American Ambassador in Putin's Russia. Michael, I thank you so much for spending some time with us here on Radio Who, What, Why. Yeah, thank you. That was terrific. We re- we covered a lot of stuff. I appreciate that. Thank you. And thank you for listening and for joining us here on Radio Who, What, Why. I hope you join us next week for another Radio Who, What, Why podcast. I'm Jeff Sheckman. If you like this podcast, please feel free to share and help others find it by rating and reviewing it on iTunes. You can also support this podcast and all the work we do by going to whowhatwhy.org forward slash donate.